We come before God's word, likely as Jesus and his disciples would have, by reciting together part of the Shema at ancient Israel, then adding to it Leviticus 19.18, which gives us what Jesus called the greatest commandment. If you'll follow after me, Shema Israel, Adonai Elhenu, Adonai Had. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the fourth chapter of Deuteronomy as Moses continues to explain to people why they need to obey the word of God. See, the laws and statutes that I have given you are commanded by the Lord your God to follow when you are entering the land to take possession of it. Observe them carefully. This will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will say, surely this is a great people who are wise and understanding. For what other nation has gods who are so near as the Lord our God is to us when we pray to him? Therefore, what other nation is as great and has such decrees and laws as the laws that I set before you this day? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. When all three of our children were growing up, the question we heard most often from them was, why? Anytime we asked something or commanded something, the response was always, why? And as Debbie told the children, sometimes the answer to that is, well, because I said so. Or we used to have a plaque in the utility room in our old house uh, that says, uh, because I'm the mommy and I said so. I thought it was interesting, it was in utility room, a room of which, of course, our sons would never darken, so I don't know how they were supposed to see that sign. But because I said so is one answer. So here we come, uh, and Moses is speaking, he's saying, obey the word of the Lord your God. And obviously they are asking, why? And the first answer one could expect would be, because I'm God and I said so. But Moses knows that the people, like any good two-year-old, will ask again, well, why? Why does God say so? So this morning, I want to give you the two answers I think Moses gave the people about why God says to to do and obey God's word and God's law. Uh, The first response that we've talked about before, Moses, Moses says, God says, keep these commandments because it's good for you. It's good for you. It's the right thing for you to do. Many scholars believe that this uh, discourse, which is the first of three major speeches Moses will give in Deuteronomy, actually takes place uh, not far from a a place known as Baal Peor. Baal Peor is where the people turned and chose poorly. They turned from worshiping the God of the universe to worshiping Baal. As a a result, a plague hit the people of Israel and 24,000 of them died. They are in the shadow of that location when Moses is saying, keep God's word, it's good for you. And I think they get that. They know that there are problems if you go astray. But of course, it's also good for you because the Lord our God is the architect of the human body, the architect of the human community, and God knows what it takes for our lives to run as God has planned. Simply put, God knows what's best for you, and it's simply best for you not to lie. It's simply best for you not to steal. It's simply the best thing to do not to commit adultery. So keeping God's laws are good for you. And Moses says, that's why you do it. 
But surprisingly, Moses doesn't leave it with that answer. Moses gives them one more. Basically, he says, and it's good for the world. It's good for all the other nations when you keep God's laws. He said, because you'll show them you are understanding and wise. And they'll look and say, wow, what kind of God is that that these people have? Because they are so wise and the rules are so righteous and just. Uh, The understanding here, I think, is one we see reflected in Jesus. And that is that the important thing is not what people say, but what people do. Jesus taught his disciples this simple uh, truth when he said, by your fruit, by their fruit, you will know other people and by your fruit, they'll know you. So one of the things Moses is saying is, look, by the way we live, people are going to know us and they're going to know that our laws are right and just. And scholars pretty well agree across the board that the laws of Moses are much uh, more righteous, just, merciful than the laws of the other nations. And in three major ways, uh, Moses' law would differ from the law of Hammurabi and the law of other great civilizations in three key ways. The first way was this. The laws of Moses were much more considerate of aliens, strangers, widows, orphans, the, the dispossessed, uh, those who were the powerless, uh, uh, fared much better in Hebrew society then they would fare in the other major civilizations of the world. In fact, a number of times you'll read in the first five books of the Bible where God says you need to treat people uh, who are foreigners or you need to treat servants uh, carefully and, uh, and lovingly because, remember, you were once slaves in Egypt. They are never to forget the fact that they all started out as the powerless, that they all started out as the dispossessed. So that's one major way that the laws of Israel were superior to the nations around them. Another major way, say scholars, is that the laws of of Moses limited what we might call collective uh, retribution or collective punishment. Um, One of the improvements first came from Hammurabi's code, um, where basically the lex talanus, which is if you poke out my eye, I will poke out your eye. Now, the advantage there is I'm not going to poke out both your eyes and cut off your nose and your hands for poking out my eye. So Hammurabi limited retribution. But what he didn't limit was collective retribution. So if you poke out my eye in Hammurabi's code, I can go poke out the eye of every person in your family. And the laws of Moses restrained uh, collective retribution and punishment. And then the third major improvement was the laws of Moses were much more careful about capital punishment. In fact, you will find capital punishment occasionally in the first five books of the Bible, but you will rarely find it enacted by the people of God. In fact, in Jesus' day, this is what the rabbi said, any ruling group called the Sanhedrin, he said, any Sanhedrin who condemns more than one person to death every 10 years needs to go back and restudy God's law. They were extremely careful about when they exercised capital punishment, and it's rarely known or practiced in, um, in Israel. That's why it's so strange when they decide to uh, stone the woman caught in adultery uh, in, in the book of John, in the Gospel of John, because it, those things just didn't happen. The laws of Moses were far superior to the laws of the other nations. And what's implied here is when they see these merciful and great laws and see these people keeping it, they will draw the connection that says, wow, they must have some sort of God, a God more merciful, 
a God more loving, a God more truly just than the gods of the other nations. And all that happens, says Moses, when you carry out God's laws, when you live the way God intends for you to live. Now, here's something I I don't think we should miss. God seems to communicate two different ways in the Scripture. One is directly. Well, God will get into people's face, and our God will send a message through a prophet. But notice that most often the direct communication from God is to God's people. So the prophets tell the people to clean up their act. So Moses tells the people, here are these Ten Commandments that will summarize all the law. And and they make pronouncements, and they make direct speech. But when it comes to the people who do not yet know God, God's communication is more indirect. God tends to reach out to them a different way. And I think this is very wise because for the uncommitted and the unconvinced, indirect communication is much more effective than direct communication. For example, this morning, it is likely that 90% of you paid much more attention to Debbie's children's sermon than you are to what I'm saying right now. And it's not because Debbie is so wise. It's because Debbie wasn't talking to you or at you. She was talking to the children. Our shields go down and indirectly we receive the message for them. I do this on a pretty frequent basis when I do a wedding. I talk to the bride and groom, but I know they are in no position to hear what I'm saying at that moment unless they've got it recorded on, uh, on film. But I do know that everyone out there who is married or contemplating marriage receives the message and it's getting through to them much more effectively than it's getting through to the couple uh, uh, with whom I'm speaking. If, if you've ever been married and been lectured by your spouse, if you've ever been a parent and tried to lecture your kids, you watch how fast the screen goes up. And direct communication is just not as effective as indirect when you have people who aren't convinced of your position. So for people already committed to God, God gets right in their face through Moses and the prophets and says, now hear this. But for people who are not, God goes a more indirect route. And one of God's favorite forms of indirect communication is example. God says, I'll communicate to the world, not through words, but through actions. I'll let them watch and see what my law looks like in the lives of people rather than trying to argue them into carrying out these laws. Edmund Burke, a few centuries ago, the um, great uh, British writer, uh, put it this way, every one of us enrolls in the school of example. Whether we went to college or not, whether we majored in one area or another area, every one of us, he said, is in the school of example. We learn best by watching other people in action. And God knows that. And God just says, the world is watching you. And I want you to live my laws, live my words, and that will convince them. And one of the ways, I think, one of the things, rather, that indirect communication does, that direct communication doesn't do as well, is it it bypasses the mind and almost goes straight to the heart where all communication needs to eventually go. When you lecture somebody, you're kind of at the mind level, and it may seep down, it may not. The great Rabbi Kiva put it this way. He said, you should aim for the heart. And the head will follow. But if you aim for the head, the heart may never get there. And one of the ways that God aims for the hearts of an unbelieving world is by speaking through the language of example. And it sort of saddens me 
when the Christian church or our Christians, uh, whenever they gather together, start making pronouncements and declarations to an unbelieving world saying you should do this and you shouldn't do that and begin to lecture a world. And I just watch the screens of the world just go straight up when God's intention from the beginning was that we would, first of all, win a right to be heard by the unconvinced by first becoming more convincing through the lives that we lead. And God follows this example clearly with Moses. Here's what God says to Moses. You're going to go to Pharaoh, he says, and this is what he tells him. You are going to be like God to Pharaoh. Now, does that mean Moses is a god? No, but one of the things it means is that Pharaoh is going to learn about me by watching you. Pharaoh is going to hear from me. By hearing for you, God is going to work through the example of a representative. And then in the New Testament, of course, God will kick that up three or four notches, at least, by sending Jesus, not only our Savior, not only our Lord, not only our friend, but the example of what it looks like to live an abundant life. John puts it this way, that God was in flesh. The word we use is incarnation. God knew that people needed an example, that they needed that form of of communication to learn best. So God did it. God's always been in the making example business as far as I can tell. And God would not only do it with individuals, but God will do it with a people or a nation. And so Israel is to be a light to the world. Israel is to be an example to other people. The way they live will be so impressive that people will want to learn more about their gods. In fact, I know I've told you before that if you look at it geographically, God gives the promised land right between the two major civilizations of the day. Egypt down here, uh, Assyrian, Babylon, Chaldeans before that over here. And for one to connect to the other, they have to go down a road called the Via Maris along the Mediterranean. And it takes them smack dab through the middle of a people who were supposed to be living a certain way. So when they passed them and they interacted with them and they saw them living this way, they would be convinced to go over to the one true God. The place, by the way, you've heard this term before, where the travelers along the coastal road and God's people who lived in the hills would meet was a a kind of a low uh, plain area called the Shephelah. And the rabbis would often ask their people, how's your Shephelah? How's your area where you are meeting the world? Are you living in such a way that they are coming to know more about God? Are we standing up back in the mountains with megaphones shouting things down to them about what they ought to do and ought not to do? Those are the two ways that we can choose to communicate. And I believe what Moses is saying is communicate with your life. When you think about the history of Israel, uh, as I've done uh, numerous times, I'm struck by the fact that the temple that Solomon built and the temple that Herod rebuilt is no longer there. There's just a a portion that, that we call the Western Wall today. And it raises the question for Jews, and I think especially for Christians, why was there no temple for God's people to go to after 70 A.D.? I think Paul gives a hint as to what happened. He's writing the Corinthians, and this is what he says to God's people. He says, you all, it's a plural, you are God's temple. 
See, temples weren't just places in the ancient world where you would go to worship God. Temples were places where you'd go to learn about that God. And so the, the more beautiful, the mightier, the better it said your God was beautiful or mighty. They would have um, social welfare programs. They would have child care. They had educational programs. Temples, pagan temples were running stuff 24-7. So people would be convinced about how wonderful the God of that temple was. But our God comes along and changes that, says Paul, and says, people are going to learn about our God by watching you. You are the new temple. And when they see you living and carrying out what God has asked you to do, they will see God and they will see the goodness of God.